supremely his gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, his buying us back from judgment in redemption, from the consequences we deserve for our wrongdoing, his generosity to us in Jesus Christ is designed to enable us to serve. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as today we begin a message called The God Who Redeems. And Jonathan, interesting that you talk about this redemption that God has done and ultimately it is designed so that we can serve. What what do you mean by that? Well, it's just really interesting. And this jumped off the page at me when I was studying Luke chapter 1 and Zechariah's prophecy at the end of that chapter that we're going to look at at together today. He's, you know, he's just rejoicing in the faithfulness of God and keeping his promises and fulfilling his word in sending redemption. And, and this line jumped out at me that, that God has been faithful to his, his covenant and so on to the promises he made so that he might deliver his people from the hand of their enemies and that his people might serve him without fear. And it's really vitally important that we get hold of that, that God has sent his salvation. He has redeemed his people in Christ, and that's at the core of the Christmas message. He's done that, not so that we can just sort of sit back and relax and delight in the fact that we've been rescued. No, that we might then be set apart as his servants in the world. And for us who trust in the Christ of Christmas, it's so good to be reminded that we have been redeemed, that we might serve. What a great thing for us to think about as we begin this time together. If you can, as you just heard, open your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter 1. We're beginning a message called, The God Who Redeems. Here is Jonathan. Well, each country and each place has its own way of celebrating Christmas, has its own Christmas traditions. And for those who have lived elsewhere in the world, as I know many in this room have, there's often an urge to maintain those traditions and to kind of import them where possible. For us as a family, having lived in the UK, there are certain features of an English Christmas that we're kind of used to and we've wanted to maintain. One of the basic necessities of Christmas in England, some of you will know, is a thing called a mince pie. Yes, I heard it. I heard an amen or something like that over there. It's a kind of uh, fruity, filled pastry pie that everyone has to at least pretend that they enjoy for about a week of the year out of a sense of obligation. We felt that we should probably get hold of some mince pies and just have them in the house, even if we didn't eat all of them. I did some research on expat blogs and discovered that a few grocery stores here in town carry them. So I found myself the other day doing the rounds of the local grocery stores in our area, just seeing if I could locate a a mince pie. I, uh, at one point, ended up in our local Freshco, and I think I had three separate staff members scouring the store, looking for this, these fabled pies, trying to understand what it was I was talking about. They thought, since I was talking about mince, that it would be a meat pie, but I was explaining, no, it doesn't need to be refrigerated. It's actually a fruit thing. And anyway, it was all very complicated. Eventually, the metro came through, and I was able to go home with a box of mince pies, and all was well. Well, the mince pies are one thing, but even more vital for an English Christmas is the opportunity to tune in and to hear the Queen's annual Christmas Day address. It somehow isn't Christmas if you don't hear the Queen's speech. It's a short broadcast. Many of you will have heard it. There's not all that much to it, really. But Christmas isn't Christmas 
If you can't join the queen and her family in the palace and share the day with them, even if for a few brief moments. Well, I'm being a little silly there. I think it still would be Christmas just about without hearing the Queen's speech, but this much is true. Christmas really is all about hearing and listening to a message. Christmas is, apart from everything else, first and foremost, all about giving time and attention to the message that comes to us from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In our passage this morning, we encounter a man a priest named Zechariah, whose life is transformed when he listens to God's message and when he learns afresh to take seriously God's Word. When we first meet Zechariah near the beginning of Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes to him from heaven with a message from God. Zechariah and his wife, who were a childless couple now well on in years, they're going to be given a son in their old age. And Zechariah, when he heard this message, he, he, he couldn't quite take it in. He didn't quite believe it. And his response to the Word of God that came to him was actually one of skeptical unbelief. Chapter 1 and verse 18, how can I be sure of this, O angel of God? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. God's angel has come to him with a wonderful message from heaven itself, the announcement of a miracle closely tied to the Christmas story, and Zechariah, well, he isn't buying it. He's not willing, not able to take it on board. And so the angel has these sobering words for him, verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. I am a messenger from heaven, sent from God himself, with God's personal word to you, Zechariah. But you wouldn't believe it. And so now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Zechariah, a spiritual leader within Israel, he refuses to listen to the message that God sends him through his angel, no less. He closes his ears and is unwilling and unable to believe. He falls under a temporary judgment for his unbelief. He becomes something of an example to us of how not to respond to the Word of God. But now in our passage today, a few verses later in the chapter, a few months later in the narrative, it comes time to circumcise the child who has been born. There's a discussion about what to name the baby boy, and Zechariah, he gets hold of a writing tablet to communicate his insistence that the child will be called John, just as the angel instructed. And suddenly, as Zechariah communicates that message, his speech comes back, his tongue is loose. Suddenly, verse 64, his lips are filled with words of praise to God above. But not only does his speech come back, verse 67, he is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesies. He now brings a message from God himself. So easy, isn't it, in the busyness of Christmas, all the manic activity, the cultural superficiality, the shopping and the parties and, and all the rest, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to allow God's voice to be drowned out, for us to allow the message of Christmas from the Word of God to fall on deaf ears. But Zechariah stands here before us today, now as a prophet of God, 
And by his example, he urges us to listen. By his own folly, he calls us to take heed. And what's his message? What does Zechariah have to tell us about Christmas? What has Zechariah himself seen and understood now that he has made himself available to listen to the Word of God? Well, Zechariah's prophetic declaration of praise, it, it falls in two parts. In the first part, verses 68 to 75, he sees and he declares this, God has brought salvation that we might serve Him. That's the first part of his message. God has brought salvation that we might serve Him. Notice again what Zechariah says, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has come and redeemed His people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us, down to verse 74 now, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. He's brought salvation to us, says Zechariah, and notice the purpose stated so clearly. It is to enable us to serve Him. Salvation is what comes to us at Christmas by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah sees and understands that. The baby to be born to Mary, he is the promised Savior. In the person of Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, verse 68, he has come and he has redeemed his people. Now, to redeem something or to redeem someone means to buy them back. And no doubt Zechariah is hoping for a national redemption where Israel will be bought back from their bondage to the Roman Empire. But there is a deeper redemption that this child will bring. He will pay the price to bring God's people back, to buy them back from slavery to sin and from the consequences of their wrongdoing. He will pay the price to buy us back from the consequences of our wrongdoing. The Savior, He would come and He would die for a guilty people, that our guilt before God might be removed, that the prospect of judgment would be lifted, that we would be reconciled to God, and that we might enjoy the prospect of an eternity spent with Him. And whatever hope Zechariah might have had for a national redemption for freedom from Rome, he saw this deeper reality as well. His words here prove it. He saw that the basic need of his people, of all people, was verse 77, the forgiveness of sin. It was escape, verse 79, from the shadow of death itself. And so when Zechariah speaks in verse 74 there of the removal of fear, it's not only the fear of political enemies that's gone, it is the fear of those ultimate dangers of judgment and death. Now, we'll come back to those later verses in a moment, but the point that Zechariah understood and proclaimed at this point is this. In the baby of Christmas, God has come to redeem. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's the gift of Christmas from God to us. Now, here we're dealing with the reality of salvation, the fact of salvation. But Zechariah saw more than simply the fact of salvation. He also saw and he also proclaimed the purpose of salvation. And here's the purpose of all this, of all that God has done. It is, says Zechariah, that we might serve God. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, a message called The God Who Redeems, part of our series, Glory in the Highest. Well, I'm glad you've tuned in today, and I hope that as you've been listening to Jonathan's teaching, it's making a difference in your walk with Christ. We'd love to know how God is using the study of His Word to really grow you in your relationship with Him. 
You can always give us your feedback. Let us know how the Lord is using this teaching in your life by coming to our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. Just click on the contact link and let us know how God is using this teaching to help you grow in your walk with Him and how we may pray for you. Again, our website address, EncounterTheTruth.org, and click on that contact link. Well, if you joined us a little bit late, we're in the book of Luke, chapter 1, as we get back to our message, The God Who Redeems. Once again, here is Jonathan. I doubt that many people here in this room will have heard the name Alan Emery. Alan, who's now died, was quite a significant figure in the evangelical world in the United States in the sort of second half of the 20th century. Perhaps most notably and significantly, he was president for a number of years of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, but he was involved in in a whole host of significant Christian organizations during his time. Alan came from a, a wealthy family in Boston who had prospered greatly in the wool industry, actually, largely, I guess, in the first half of the 20th century. We had some links with the Emerys, and I, I had a chance to visit Alan when I was down in Boston some years ago. He lived in a very beautiful place. His house was a, a replica of Mount Vernon, George Washington's home, and it was set in a very nice estate overlooking Boston Harbor. It was a lovely place. Anyway, during that visit, Alan was kind enough to give me a copy of the book that he had written some years before, which was really just a a little collection of life lessons that the Lord had taught him. And it's quite an interesting little volume. I enjoyed reading it. But the chapter that really caught my attention was a chapter that he entitled, Tools, Not Idols. And it was all about stewardship of the gifts that he had been entrusted with. He tells the story in that chapter of how on his 16th birthday, his parents gave him a a very nice sailboat, a lovely gift for a boy who grew up by the sea. And he recalls that as his father presented this boat to him, Alan was dreaming of all the races and competitions he would enter, the Bermuda, the Halifax, and so on. And, And as he was dreaming, his father said this to him, and he quotes, your mother and I are happy to give this to you as we know that you will use it as a tool to lead your Sunday school boys to Jesus Christ. And Alan went on to say he never entered any of the races he dreamed of. But each weekend, this is what he did. He took a group of boys, I guess from the church, out on the water. And as he did that, his sailboat from his parents became a means of presenting the claims of Jesus Christ to those young guys in his Sunday school class. He goes on in that chapter to talk about this lovely home and estate that he inherited from his parents. And I just discovered, incidentally, that it's been turned into a public park only months ago. But, but he went on to say that they saw how the Lord enabled them to use their home as a tool. For 50 years, he and his wife, Marion, used to run a weekly Bible study for the youth in their neighborhood where every week for fully half a century, up to 125 local teenagers would come round to their house and congregate in their living room to hear God's Word and to grapple with the claims of Jesus Christ. And many lives were transformed through that ministry. Many people went off onto the mission field or into full-time gospel service. Now, Alan's story is quite unusual, and it's quite remarkable in some ways. There are some interesting principles there to consider with respect to stewardship, but that's not actually why I mention his story today. I'm interested in that story and in that chapter of his book because it illustrates, I think, an even bigger principle. And the big overarching principle is this. God's gifts to us are intended to enable us to serve. 
when we receive gifts, large or small, when we receive generous and lavish gifts, especially if we ever receive those, our instinct is always to enjoy them. Our instinct is to assume that they're given for the sake of our pleasure, for our personal satisfaction. But what the Bible always challenges us to do is to understand that when God gives gifts to us, He gives us those gifts for the sake of service. And at the most fundamental level, we need to understand that God has reached out to us in immense generosity in salvation. He has acted on our behalf in redemption, to use the language of the passage. And He has done so. He has given those gifts for what purpose that we might serve Him. You see, we might be inclined, I think we probably would be inclined, to take our salvation, the gift of salvation, and see it simply as a free ticket to heaven, and to imagine that we are now just set free to enjoy the ride. But God's gifts to us, they're never just for the purpose of our own enjoyment, for our own comfort. His gifts do bring us joy and pleasure, and that's good and right, but they are designed to enable us to serve Him and to serve others. And so supremely, His gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, His buying us back from judgment in redemption, from the consequences we deserve for our wrongdoing, His generosity to us in Jesus Christ is designed to enable us to serve. Now, in a society where we're so much about our own rights and our autonomy and our personal self-fulfillment and all the rest of it, I think we find it very hard to get our heads around this principle. But it is a Bible principle, it is the Bible pattern, and it is the prophetic insight that Zechariah was given. We are saved in order that we might serve. And notice in particular the way in which we are to serve as a saved people. Verse 75, we are saved to serve without fear in righteousness and holiness before him all our days. I was speaking to a police officer not long ago about the much-discussed legalization of marijuana here in Canada, and I was asking him, leading up to the date when the drug was legalized, during that kind of gray in-between period where the decision to legalize had been taken, but it hadn't yet been enacted, during that period, how were the police handling the enforcement of the law? I was fascinated. Were they targeting marijuana users for prosecution and so on? He said, you know, the reality was that it had become a lower priority during that period since the rules were just about to change anyway. It was still illegal to buy and use marijuana, but it wouldn't be for long, so the police weren't really giving attention to it. Now, it's not so surprising to me that the police took that particular approach. But as I listened to that, I thought to myself, it is obvious what is going to be the natural reaction on the street. If the threat of punishment is essentially gone, people will feel all the more free to ignore the rules. And I'm sure they did feel that freedom. I'm sure that's what they did. I'm sure that's what was taking place all over the place in the months leading up to the enactment of that new law. Our tendency is always to feel freer about the rules, more lax in our behavior if the threat of punishment is diminished or gone altogether. That's just the way we think. But Zechariah is telling us that for the Christian person, God's intention in salvation is precisely the opposite. In saving us from the prospect of judgment, in removing the fear of ultimate punishment for sin, even death itself, in saving us, God is liberating us that we might 
serve him in holiness and righteousness and without fear. His grace to us, his kindness, his generosity, it is designed to promote our holiness and our righteousness. Sometimes in Christian circles, I think we can be a little bit wary of gift giving at Christmas time. And I know people have different views on, on this. And some feel, you know, the materialism has just got out of control. And maybe Christians shouldn't do the present thing anymore. I, I understand that concern. I understand that choice. But speaking personally, I actually quite like the symbolism of presents at Christmas. I actually think they're quite a nice reminder, at least for me personally, of the lavish generosity of God to us in Jesus Christ. See, in this season, we remember that God has given us an astonishing gift. He has given us the most lavish gift ever given, and He has done so out of His sheer grace and out of His immense kindness. And so it is right for us, isn't it, to reflect on the generosity and grace of God at Christmas time as we celebrate, as we give and receive gifts. It is right to remember God's kindness to us. But as we remember, it's important that we then go on to consider the next part, how God's generosity calls and enables us to serve. It's right to ask ourselves at Christmas time, over these coming days as we celebrate in our homes and with our families, how am I using the freedom and the new life that God has given me in Christ? How am I channeling all that to serve? How might I do that in a new way in the new year with fresh joy and energy and impetus? And it's right to ask the next question too. What about holiness? And, and what about righteousness? Where perhaps are the places that I'm presuming upon God's grace in my own life? Where am I ignoring or setting aside that call to holy living, to righteousness? in my thoughts, my actions, my words? How am I taking for granted the kindness of God in Jesus Christ and perhaps even abusing that kindness through rebellion and sin? See, God hasn't saved us that we might flout His standards and ignore His Word. He has saved us. He has given us the gift of His Spirit that we might have the freedom we need to pursue holiness, to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness without fear of any kind. God has provided salvation that we might serve Him. That's the first prophetic insight of these verses. And the next one is this. God has given light that we might follow His way. Well, we're going to have to hit the pause button right here. And we'll come back and look at that truth on our next broadcast. I do hope you make it a point to tune in. By the way, our message today is called The God Who Redeems. And if you've missed any part of the broadcast, you can always go back and you can listen online. Our website address is EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. Again, that's at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. We depend on your financial generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station and online, and on the app. So however you connected with this ministry and however you listen to the program, it is your generosity that makes it all possible. But as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called The Grace of Gratitude. And Jonathan, why are you picking a book about gratitude during the Christmas season? Well, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year, but it can also be a really tough time of the year for many people. And it can be a season when the burdens of life 
and the trials of life and the sadnesses of life can threaten to overwhelm us. And for some listening, you know, I mentioned that and you'll be thinking that's exactly right. That is how I'm feeling as I head into Christmas. And this lovely little book, The Grace of Gratitude, is designed to help us turn our groaning and our grumbling, perhaps, into gladness and gratitude by focusing again on the Lord's kindness to his people. It's a study of Psalm 66, that's the core of it, but it is a real aid to those who are struggling with ingratitude at a time of year when we know we're meant to be feeling grateful. So I hope it might be an encouragement to you or to others whom you know. Well, we'd love to send you a copy of this book, The Grace of Gratitude, as you give a gift of any amount this month. You can give online at encounterthetruth.org or call us at 833-998-7884. Again, the website, encounterthetruth.org, or the phone number is 833-99-TRUTH. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.